when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this episode, we'll be discussing the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the role of data in politics. Plus, Theresa May has finally secured a Brexit transition deal. I'm delighted to be joined by our Brussels Bureau Chief, Alex Barker, political columnist Philip Stevens, innovation editor John Thornhill, and deputy comment editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Cambridge Analytica was a little-known company before this week. Selling data scraping and data analysis from political campaigns is not a new idea, but the London-based company did just that, albeit for Donald Trump and the Brexit campaign. An explosive investigation by the Observer newspaper and Channel 4 has revealed some of the firm's more questionable practices, raised further questions about Facebook's ethics and again the debate about data and politics. Miranda Green, there's been quite a lot of reporting before this week on Cambridge Analytica, particularly at the Observer newspaper about their role in the Leave campaign, their role in the Trump campaign, but we've had some big new allegations. Just bring us up to speed on where we're at. You're absolutely right, Seb. There's been a sort of quite long-term almost campaign in some parts of the media to point the finger of blame at Cambridge Analytica in particular for sort of distorting democracy. And lots of us felt that they hadn't quite got the story. And this week they really did get the story big time because they managed to put together two elements. One was that this company was sort of scraping people's Facebook profiles beyond numbers you'd actually consented by signing up to a personality test online. It then got all their friends as well. So it was in possession of about 50 million Facebook profiles, which then allowed them to advise on micro-targeting of political advertising in the American presidential campaign. And another really significant thing was revealed, which is that Facebook found out about this, knew about it, didn't crack down. And it sort of exposed the fact that we're all actually vulnerable to exploitation of our own personal data, which we have given away for free because we then get internet services like Facebook for free in return. In terms of the politics... I think you and I see this quite similarly, which is it would be a mistake to say that, you know, Brexit and Trump are a phenomenon only to do with distortion of uh, political advertising because of this kind of data wizardry. Because let's face it, political sort of spin machines and advertisers and PR firms have always tried to pretend they can sort of do voodoo on the electorate. So I think we have to be quite careful how we interpret it politically. But I think it's certainly the case that when we're in an era where we already know there are sort of debates about fake news, etc. People are not watching all the same media, so there's not a shared understanding of the 
democratic discourse amongst an electorate, this micro-targeting of groups to find out who might be swayed by particular messages can be powerful and can swing narrow political fights. So it is worth paying close attention to what's going on. And I think the key thing there is that both the Brexit referendum result and Donald Trump won by quite narrow victories. And that what creates this debate that if there hadn't been for Cambridge Analytica or what have you, then it might have gone a different way. But John Thornhill, let's just talk about what Cambridge Analytica actually did. There was a quiz. Now, we all know these quizzes. I didn't really know anyone still did them, but apparently they did and millions of people did. And this was used under the pretense of an academic exercise that was then used by Cambridge Analytica, which was quite a clear violation of Facebook's rules and principles. How did they not know this was going on? Well, they did know about it in 2015 and they went and did shut down the system by which Cambridge Analytica were effectively sucking the data out of the end users. Um, But they didn't really do much else beside that. And other companies have been accessing data uh, via Facebook in similar ways uh, for a very long time. And I think that this is a really big issue for Facebook because their model really is to um, take data from their users and to serve it up in different ways to advertisers uh, and other people who are um, accessing Facebook. And so I think it is not just a bug, it's a feature of Facebook. And I think that does mean it's a very serious issue for the company, which is why investors took fright this week and why the shares fell so heavily. Yes, there was billions wiped off Facebook following the reports, which was, as I said, the Observer, the New York Times and Channel 4 uh, worked across this issue here. But the response from the company has not been particularly comprehensive either because when the stories first broke they threatened to sue the newspaper which is never really a good idea and then they've had to do the full grovel essentially and saying you know we got this wrong we even heard from Mark Zuckerberg you know what did you make of Facebook's response to this was it adequate in your view? Well, I think their response has been pretty terrible, frankly. They've been way behind the story. They've, as you said, um, tried to kind of shut the story down initially, uh, have been forced into making concessions about what they knew, when they knew it, uh, have appeared to, to have taken only kind of relatively mild steps to try to redress the situation. And then Zuckerberg gave a whole series of interviews in which he kind of apologised, but actually didn't. So I think they still have a very big public relations battle ahead of them. Um, Regulators all around the world, both in the US and Europe, are now itching to question them about what they knew and when they knew it. And I think the critical thing will be how their users uh, respond to this. There clearly is a delete Facebook campaign that has already got up and going, which is a bit reminiscent of the kind of delete Uber campaign uh, that we saw last year. And I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley feel as though this is just a passing phenomenon, that there are squalls of concern about privacy, but this is likely to blow over and the Facebook juggernaut will continue to steam ahead. I think that really, Miranda, is going to be the the bigger point here about the political implications because Mark Zuckerberg has been called before the Digital Culture Media and Sports Select Committee in the UK and in front of the US Senate as well to answer key questions about this where I'm sure he'll be quizzed in far greater detail than we saw this week. But again, it really comes to the culmination of what we've seen because um, in British politics, Labour Party ran a very effective social media campaign, which was very much from the grassroots upwards. It was people creating memes, creating their own messages, whereas the Conservatives, not 
not as well as they did in 2015, but in 2017, ran a similarly targeted campaign to the kind of things Cambridge Analytica were doing. So this is not new, but I think where it does get people concerned is the psychological profiling and whether it's, you know, it's why we don't have push polling in this country, because, you know, affecting how people view and make political decisions is very different to just asking them what they think about something. Yes, no, I think you're very correct to see this as a sort of evolution on the spectrum of political campaigning tools and certainly for example those Labour online ads that did so well for them uh, from the Momentum group on Facebook in the 2017 election, I mean there's nothing sinister about that at all, they were just very clever ads sent to the right people that's no different from somebody with a canvassing sheet and a grubby pencil knocking on doors in suburbia and working out who are the wavering voters that you should come back to persuade nearer to polling day What's different about this is whether you're kind of able to then push misinformation at people having learnt about their likes and dislikes through how they behave online because that idea of kind of political disinformation could very easily corrupt the political process and I think that's why people are so hot under the collar about it. It is to do with an anxiety about the era of populism um, and I think it's very important therefore to distinguish about between the things that we should worry about in this case and the things that are just a new evolution of campaigning. I mean, at the end of the day, we clearly don't know whether the Cambridge Analytica campaign actually worked or not. I mean, it's still massively unclear whether what effect it had. But I think you're right, Miranda, that there's a far bigger issue about the disinformation that is being pumped into the public sphere at the moment. Uh, we've had all the accusations of the Russian trolls doing this. Uh, we now had accusations of kind of computational propaganda by various different actors. Um, and I think personally, that's a massive issue. If we can't agree on the uh, facts of any particular argument or uh, the basis of political debate, then we don't have a political system uh, that's worth the name. And I think one of the things people have been trying to work out is how much Cambridge Analytica were snake oil salesmen because they promised a lot of things, a lot of grand claims. Now, in terms of the service they offer, John, you know, there was this story that came out that Alexander Nix, who was the CEO of Cambridge Analytica, tried to pitch to Boris Johnson at some point, who described him as a blowhard and then rejected his services. So not everyone was taken <laughs> in by what they were promising. Well, interestingly, even Steve Bannon, who is obviously very close to Cambridge Analytica, at the FT Future of News conference this week, rather dissed the whole methodology that Cambridge Analytica were using. He said that he thought uh, they had promised a lot on the kind of psychological profiling of the voters, but he wasn't sure that they had actually delivered very much on that front at all. Now, that could just be that he's trying to distance himself from the whole controversy. But I don't think anyone has come up with any conclusive proof that it did have uh, a substantive impact on the elections. As we were saying, Miranda, the real sort of prize for a lot of the people who are campaigning and very interested in this is the idea to delegitimise the Brexit vote and the Trump vote. Based on what you've seen, do you think there's any way that's going to happen? Um, you mean that it would be a successful way to paint those two results yeah, as, as, as somehow, somehow illegitimate? No, I, no. I mean, the, you know, these are now the realities that we're we're living with, both Brexit and the Trump presidency. But I do think that there is a mood to try and regulate some of this advertising that there perhaps wasn't before. And I mean, I think your reference earlier to the way that opinion polling is very strictly controlled so that you're not persuading people whilst you try and measure their political preference. You know, that that's an example of regulation which keeps the process healthy 
And I think there's a call for that. Also, the other thing we should point out is there are very stringent EU rules on data protection about to become a reality. Which GDPR. Will act, GDPR, which will... Every organisation in the EU is scrambling to meet these new rules. And a giant like Facebook will also have to meet these rules where it operates in the EU. And that, I think, will be a moment as well for working out what regulation is the right balance. And I think in the wider societal context, John, people are wondering, is this the moment that we take back control of our data? <laughs> this point that at which, you know, that we have so much of our lives are now online and a lot of people predict there would be a moment when people go, well, hang on a minute. I'm not happy with how my data is being used and abused. Do you think the Cambridge Analytica and how Facebook responds to that, whether it's going to get more regulated at the EU level, the US level, the national level, but the era of the free flow of data online is coming to an end. Well, one would like to think so, but I'm rather sceptical that that will happen certainly in the immediate future. I mean, I think Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who founded the World Wide Web 29 years ago, made a very eloquent plea last week for us to reinvent the web and to put the user first and to make the algorithms work for the user rather than against them. And I think that is a very powerful case that he makes. The difficulty with that is, and there are any number of uh, new innovative companies who are coming up with clever new ways of making that a reality, is that it's very hard to see how any of these companies are going to scale. Um, Facebook, Google, other kind of tech platforms are now massive companies. They have an enormous presence in Europe, um, higher in some respects in Europe than they have in the US. So I can't see it's going to be very easy to shift those companies, even if there is a different sensibility in Europe and that there is more of a concern about privacy and data use. But I think also it commercially there's a funny sort of shift going on as well, isn't there, against online advertising? I mean, one thinks of P&G, huge group, which is actually now very sceptical about what it's promised by the internet giants in terms of this targeted advertising. So there's also the question of whether the business model starting to look shaky for a giant like Facebook, starts to change the environment and make them more susceptible to persuasion that they need to recognise their role, their social role and indeed their political role. Because it seems like, you, you know, Seb, when you were discussing with John Facebook's terrible reactions to this story, it's almost as if they don't understand their own power and they don't want to take responsibility for it and they might have to now. Well, there's a sort of, it's the Silicon Valley utopianism in a way, John, that these terms were created, even the internet itself was created with the best principles, the best ideas in mind to spread information and empower people. And to a huge extent, that's been true and that has happened. But a lot of these companies, and we've written a lot about this at the FT, Facebook and Google and what have you, have not faced up to the what they've done to the rest of society. So if you take the news industry, our industry, for example, being completely reshaped by Google and Facebook, yet they've been quite reluctant to face up to that so it is going to be see how that changes just finally to go back to the political element of this do you think this is going to affect how political campaigns are run because in the uk we have this body called the electoral commission that runs elections which is frequently criticized because it has a, a pretty much an impossible job of trying to run fair and free elections and everybody attacks and try to delegitimize them where i think there is a fair criticism is that they are very behind on technology and there's this huge gap on online advertising that tv and political advertisements are highly regulated, leaflets are regulated, posts are regulated, online, it's essentially a free-for-all. 
So it does seem untenable that we'll go into another referendum or another general election, whatever it may be. And it's as it is now. Well, I think there's always a tendency for regulators and politicians to lag well behind technology. So I think even if they catch up with some of the issues that are confronting people now, uh, they're going to be behind the next wave of uh, technological use. I think the nuclear option, though, clearly for all of these tech platforms will be for politicians to declare that they are publishers uh, in the same way that newspapers or broadcasters are and that they are in some senses responsible for the content that they post. That would be a massive change uh, for people like Facebook. Uh, it would give them huge kind of legal problems in what they publish. Uh, and that would be a total game changer, even if I can't see it actually happening. Just on this wider question of political advertising, though, actually political advertising, certainly in the UK, is very unregulated and the advertising standards uh, body has no control over it. So I think you might start to see towards election time a bit more appetite for regulating that, which has its downsides as well, of course, because who's to determine what is a lie and what is persuasion in advertising? And then we're back to fake news and fake advertising. We often have these big Brexit moments and there was another one of them this week, the transition deal. Theresa May went to Brussels and got pretty much what we expected, a standard implementation period as she likes to call it that will last until the end of 2020. That means not much is going to change on Brexit Day, much to the annoyance of some of those Brexiters. But there's still some thorny issues, not least the Irish border to resolve, before we even begin to think about what that eventual trade deal is going to look like. So Alex Barker, can you just begin by telling us what has actually been agreed in Brussels on Friday? Well, uh, today the 27 uh, got together, they've agreed their latest, what they call guidelines to their negotiator. And this basically gives the green light for the first time uh, to start discussions about the future with the UK. It's 21 months since the referendum. It's been quite a long wait, but that can now start. Um, they also had a discussion about the kind of tactics of how to approach this, what to prioritise, how clear they wanted to be, how detailed they want to be about the future relationship in the agreement they reached before Brexit Day, um, and how they should manage their own national interests, the interests of their sectors, whether they should be kind of um, reserved in their approach to the UK, get the UK to come and ask for things, and finally how they use their leverage to make sure that the UK finishes the final bits and some of the hardest bits of the withdrawal agreement. And that's particularly the case for Northern Ireland. And I think the main message is they're going to take quite a cautious, reserved, restrained approach to this first phase of discussions about the future relationship and really focus on trying to find a solution to Northern Ireland before June. So, Philip Stevens, would you say this deal is a triumph for Mrs May, that after all this negotiation, we got the first part of the exit deal back in December, which was the money and agreeing citizens' rights and putting this crucial backstop on Northern Ireland, which we'll come to in a moment. Now we've got the transition phase sorted, so it gets to where Britain really wants to be, which is talking about that long-term relationship. But there's been a bit of uh, the UK has had to give up a lot on the way so far. Well, yes, I think um, the, there have been a whole series of concessions or some might say capitulations by the government. But I think the point that Alex made, it's been 21 months since the referendum. We're only now beginning to talk about the most critical thing, what our trading, economic and political relationship with Europe will be after Brexit. 
and we've got five months to wrap that up. So 21 months to get to here and five months left till October when this is supposed to be wrapped up to, if you like, draw a picture of this most, most important relationship. What this says to me, I think, is that the government here is in a frame of mind that says they'll take any deal, basically, on the future relationship that's on offer, that the deal in October, if indeed there is one, and of course uh, the Irish question has to be settled, will be extremely vague. And this process of Brexit negotiation will continue after we've left um, for at least 18 months, and I think probably quite probably longer. Do you think that's fair, Alex? Has the UK managed to get anything out of the EU in this later stage of the negotiations? Well, they they have a guarantee of sorts on transition. That's a very valuable economic prize. Uh, It's incomplete guarantee because it depends on the rest of the withdrawal agreement being pulled together. But that has bought time for the British economy, for British negotiators. As Philip said, um, in October, what we'll have on the future relationship is a political declaration. It's not anything like a treaty. It will be, you know, 20, 30, 50 pages maybe, uh, but not the kind of thousand pages that goes into a free trade agreement. And so we'll have another couple of years of really getting into the detail of the regulatory arrangements that will replace what the EU provided for the UK economy. Um, And to that extent, the next few months will be very important in establishing the baseline, the, the kind of the really core questions of how that framework will work, what the territory is, how it applies to Northern Ireland, Gibraltar, whether it's a customs union or not. But it's very basic, fundamental questions that will be answered. A lot of the the filling out will be done afterwards, after Brexit Day. Because the key thing, Philip, is still the Irish border question, which the can has been kicked down the road several times on this as being a problem that is really too hard to solve. But eventually you will hit the end of the road with that. And that's probably going to be October. And from my understanding, it looks like the EU said you've got three months to come up with something. If you don't get that, then we have to look towards the backstop, which is regulatory alignment um, between Northern Ireland and the EU, which raises a whole host of difficult questions, as well as the practical limitations of that, i.e. saying to the UK, unless you want to put a border in the Irish Sea, then you're going to have to shadow the EU for the foreseeable future. It's also a domestic problem for Mrs May because her backbench has swallowed a lot so far. If you remember the bellicose rhetoric we were hearing about, we'll have the quickest trade deal ever, we'll be able to have all our cake and eat it, and each way it's kind of sort of come back to reality. But the Irish reality is going to be another big heave for the Prime Minister to get through with her party. I think that's right. I mean, as for cakes, um, all one can see on the table now are a few crumbs. Um, But uh, I think the problem with Ireland is the very real one that this isn't a, you know, it sounds a little like a technical problem about border posts. Actually, it's a fundamental political problem. Peace in Northern Ireland was built on this idea that the island of Ireland is economically united. Economically united, people can move to and fro across uh, from one to the other. People can be citizens of both. If you put a border in there, you are risking, I think, a return to the really violent sectarianism 
that saw that war. So this is a huge issue. It's also an issue for the future of the United Kingdom. The problem is that Mrs May has not just her own pro-Brexit MPs on her back. She relies on the Ulster Unionists, the DUP, for her majority in the House of Commons. So it'll be quite hard for her to take, if you like, an objective view of the outcome. My guess, though, is in the end, she will have to accept some sort of delineation. Let's call it a soft border in the Irish Sea. She talks about a soft border north and south. What about a soft border under the waves? I think, Alex, you know, the sense that I've been picking up from the cabinet is that there's going to be some kind of fudge over this, that there, as, as Philip was saying, there will be something like that the UK will end up falling on this backstop, but will have the ability to diverge in the future, which it never would unless, you know, the political circumstances change there. Is that how you see um, it playing out from the European side? I mean, fudge is uh, is is plentiful uh, in Brussels throughout this whole process. On Northern Ireland, uh, in Northern Ireland, I think it's going to be quite hard to finesse that in a way that really avoids the question, because ultimately, a solution to Northern Ireland and the border issues needs to go in the withdrawal treaty, binding, absolutely clear in black and white, and all of the other options we have. That's not this kind of backstop. Uh, all things which are negotiated after Brexit, you know, the future relationship that could only be completed after Brexit, the technological solutions, you can only really make sure those work after Brexit. So the backstop is with us. The UK is accepted. Yeah, there has to be some kind of backstop. And it's quite hard to design one of those that really doesn't raise any of those fundamental political problems that Philip was raising about the borders and how you police them and who's in charge. That is one of the hardest and biggest and possibly the biggest question they're going to have to answer before October and before Brexit Day. In terms of the future relationship, there's plenty they can uh, you know, kind of glide over uh, and leave ambiguous. Um, I think in Berlin and Paris... Uh, there's certainly a desire at this point to try and make it as clear as possible and to make clear what isn't possible after Brexit as well as what is, um, because I don't think they want a situation where the UK leaves with all the kind of economic benefits of the EU as part of this transition and with no sense uh, that they're losing anything afterwards because the future relationship is just so unclear. Uh, Here, I think we have to come back to the idea of a customs union. There's already the prospect of a vote in Parliament uh, during the summer where Parliament could vote for a customs union. Speaking to uh, senior people in the Irish government, they think really the only way to deal with this is for Britain to be part of a customs union with the EU27. So I think Ireland stroke customs union uh, is going to be the issue that dominates the next few months. And as finally, Philip, the last thing that we have now got is time, because so far the clock of Article 50 has given this very firm date that if there wasn't an agreement set by March 2019, the UK would be out on its ear and we could descend into sort of administrative calamity and an economic catastrophe. But now we're getting a bit more certainty. It looks like the cliff edge, if you want to call it that, is not now going to be till 2020. Do you think 
that's enough time to get all the preparations in because everything we've heard from the UK side and from the EU side with Michelle Barney's famous chart on the end state options is it's going to be some form of a Canada deal, what David Davis likes to call the bottom-up approach. So that means a lot of new infrastructure and processes that need to be ready for the end of 2020. Well, first of all, on the question of time, we've only got time if we sort these other issues out because the transition is contingent on a full settlement. On whether it can be done by the end of 2020, I don't think there's a hope in hell. I've talked to a number of Whitehall officials who say it's just physically, uh, bureaucratically impossible to do. There will have to be some extension of the transition agreement. There's no provision for that at the moment. But as I understand it, Alex may correct me, there's nothing that says it cannot under any circumstances be extended. So, I mean, my bet would be we'll still be in this sort of no man's land of post-Brexit transition in 2021-2022. Well, I mean, on the extension, the lawyers here have been... uh arguing over this for some time. I think as long as there's something explicit that allows for changes to be made to this agreement, they'll find a way to be able to extend if they need to. One interesting conversation I had with one of UK's near allies, they seem um, both encouraged and a little alarmed that their customs um, prep work looks a bit more advanced than what the UK has been doing uh, in a lot of areas. And the encouragement is that they think, you know, is the UK really just preparing to stay in the customs union? Uh, they're not doing anything at the moment to, uh, to show us they really want an alternative path. But will this all be in place by 2020? I don't think I'd find anyone in Brussels who thinks that the customs arrangements will all be ready for a free trade agreement with customs borders by that date. And onwards we go. That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to Alex, Philip, John and Miranda for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. This podcast was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Joshua Oliver. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.